Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. That's right, H-E-L-P. BetterHelp, if you're feeling untethered, lost, disconnected, then go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo and start working with a licensed professional therapist in the next 48 hours. That's right, 48 hours. If you're like me, uh, I need somebody to talk to, somebody to help me get unstuck, help me to achieve my goals, to to zoom out, to resolve conflict. And if you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, you'll enjoy 10% off your first month. They are uh, everywhere. They're international. They're global. They're all over the place. I like to travel. You know your boy Leo Flowers. It's been to five continents. So I need my therapy to go with me. I don't need someone who is encumbered by uh, I can only work in the state of California. That doesn't work for me. I have stamps in my passport. So if you like to travel and you need your therapy to go with you, uh, go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. And the best part is, is you know those days where uh, you don't want to be seen? You don't want (laughs) the camera on? You can just talk. You can call to talk. You don't have to always have the video on. And that's beautiful because you don't have to sit through traffic. You don't have to sit in a waiting room. I've had that where I've been in a waiting room at the therapist and then somebody I know is walking out of the therapy session. Embarrassing, embarrassing. So go to betterhelp.com and and enjoy your online therapy in the next 48 hours where you can find peace, feel seen, feel heard, feel understood. Betterhelp.com dot com forward slash leo enjoy your 10 percent off now all right <laughs> welcome to another episode of before you kill yourself with your host leo flowers i am leo flowers today's guest is ryan montblue he's a singer songwriter uh and currently he's he's even though i think you were born in massachusetts right you yes. you're living in in vermont why why the move to vermont uh, I love it here in Burlington, Vermont, and I kind of see all the places from touring, playing music. So over the years and, um, you know, my roots are in Boston. And even when you think you, you know, my family's really small, even when you think of like, I don't have that many roots there. It's really hard to move far from your roots, you know, and I see all the places. I love Asheville. I love Austin. I love Oregon. I love there's so many places. But here is, you know, it's about three hours from where I grew up and it's um it's just beautiful here. People are friendly. There's a nice sense of community for it's a small city. There's things going on, but it's like it's kind of a graspable sense of community I find here. And it's beautiful. Sense of community, friendly, beautiful. Um, I am fast. I'm excited to have you on because the, the song that led me to you, I know for a lot of your fans is 75 and sunny. For me, yeah. it was I was just leaving. Nice. I can't tell you the number of times I replayed that song and like cried and it like it I felt it in my bones and was just like, my God, what did this guy go through to write such a who was the girl? I was like, I need I need photos. I need to I need a back. I need a book. I need a movie. I need a whole I need the whole thing. I need this branded. Um, <laughs> talk to me about I was just leaving. And did that come out of one relationship or did that come out of multiple relationships well it came that whole record is really to me it's I you know I think it's the best record I've put out and because of my heart is really on there it's really raw 
And for once, like the production kind of matched up with where the tunes were, which is such an important thing as a musician. And, and um, it's just really stripped down and I'm kind of stripped bare and just laying my heart out um, on that whole record, really. So, yeah, it was a multitude of things. It was a relationship, a romantic relationship that, you know, I had been in for five years that that ended. And then I had, um, you know, managers. I had a relationship with them that that ended. I had a band for 10 years and that ended. There was a lot of kind of endings and and kind of being on the road for a decade straight and kind of landing alone in a room and just really suffering just a lot of isolation and I can go into it I mean there's I was just in a you know tough spot unfortunately I had the music to kind of like you know so a lot of those songs kind of vibrated through me they felt like you know and that one in particular was one um the the title track I was just leaving um it, it, I mean, it's funny. It's the, the chorus of that actually came to me in a dream. And I've been waiting my whole career for something to come to me in a dream. You hear of these stories like Keith Richards, I think, got satisfaction in a dream and stuff like that. So I would get ideas in a dream and record them and wake up the next day and be like, oh my God, I can't wait to listen to that. And they were inevitably just crap ideas. They were never good. And I finally got this one good one. And uh, yeah, it was in the dream. It was actually Brian Adams was singing in the distance and some speakers. Uh, and I heard this like kind of sense of a chorus. And, and in the dream, I was like, that's a good chorus. I got to write that down and took out my pencil in the dream. Then I woke up and then I was like, that was a good chorus and, and recorded it in my phone. And then cut to whenever it was, I don't even know, a few months later, I was working on songs for this record. I had a deadline kind of, you know, you, you need deadlines. Otherwise, it's so open ended. And I was working, I had like studio time booked in New Orleans and I was, you know, I had something to, I had to get these songs ready and I was just working every day, putting in time. And by flexing those muscles, by having like a practice every day to do it, I was just sort of in that mode. And I took a break and I was beating my head against the wall on some of these songs. And I took a break. I was living in Brooklyn at the time, this little basement apartment. And I just took a break from writing and and then almost immediately I remembered that chorus I had had from the dream. And then it was just all like, bleh. I just like wrote that whole song in like an hour or something. And it just all came out. It doesn't usually happen like that, but it's a blessing when it does. But, but that, that blood of it all just coming out came from you practicing and beating your head up against the wall for days, weeks. It sounded like. Yeah, precisely. Weeks of just going. I mean, and, and I'm always kind of slowly writing. I'm never sort of like not, in some kind of mode of having the radar up for lines and things like that. But it's so easy to start songs. It's so hard to finish them. So I was in the practice of putting the time in of, of yeah, just being in that mode. And then, if, yeah, then when you think you're beating your head against the wall and you're getting nowhere, it's actually, you are actually doing the work. And then when you take a break, you take a shower, you take a, you take a walk, then it all kind of, you, you sort of provide the space for all those things to come forth, hopefully. So that's how it worked out on that one. Yeah, you know what? I realized Bruce Lee talks about, uh, has this quote talking about be like water. And mm -hmm. for me, I realized creatively it means that water ebbs and flows. So, you know, when, you, when you're engaging with the work and you're trying to figure out the, 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 the chorus or the, the next verse, that's you coming into shore. And then when you take a shower, go for a walk, that's the water receding back into the ocean. And you need that back and forth in order to, like you said, to kind of feed it and keep it going to stay in some type of flow. Yeah, water takes the shape of whatever 
whatever it's in. So you need to let it flow. There's so many lessons still in my life to this day and always of just let it flow. Let things go where they want to go. You are not in control of the things you're not in control of. You, you, you know, you, you have to let things go. And it's like easier said than done. You know, there's so many lessons in life. It's like, for so many years, I could have gotten that answer right on the test. Yes, I know I must self-love. I know that I must let things flow. I know, you know, I know the answers, but to grow into them, to actually actualize them, to realize them in your life is another thing. And you just have to keep taking steps and keep walking into it. And it, you know, in my experience, it always takes longer than you think it does. But again, you're not going to sort of think your way out of it. You know, you're not, it's not what you think it is. It is, it is what it is. And um, yeah, gotta let it flow. How old are you? How old are you right now, Ryan? I'm 45. I just turned 45 last week. Uh, happy birthday. Happy belated birthday. Um, Self-love. Is that something that you practiced growing up in Massachusetts? When I think of Massachusetts, I think of Boston. I think how tough it is. And yeah. uh, there, there's no room for feelings. We're the pissed or cool. You know, like, <laughs> was, was there... <laughs> Was there room for you to strip down and be and and be vulnerable on the streets of Massachusetts? I don't. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in a pretty cushy suburb section north of Boston, so it wasn't like I was walking the streets of Boston. But I did notice as I grew up and went to other places, like it's just the the our culture there is not one of sort of being extroverted and being friendly to strangers. The first time I was in a bar in Denver and a stranger started talking to me, the Boston me was like, this guy's problem, you know, like, and it was just, uh, you know, you realize, Oh, people are just friendly. Sometimes people are nice to each other there. It's like, you know, I think I love, you know, I love my people where I come from in Boston, but it's, you know, it's, it's a little more, there's more going on inside and there's more, and there's just less like sort of being outgoing to strangers. That's one of the things I like about living here. It's like, it reminds me of some places out West or down South where there's just at least a little more in the culture to be friendly to strangers, you know? And, and anytime I thought about moving from here, from Burlington, I've had some, some little magical experience happens where a stranger is nice to me or offers to help me or, one of the people I know happens to stop by in town or something. And it's just been full of like these little experiences I need to keep going. Yeah. I've heard you say in interviews in college, you went through a depressive spell and you know, you're feeling lonely and isolated. I, but in my head, when I think of small town, suburban area, I think of close knit, uh, you know, group of friends, did you did you not feel that connection and that friendliness in your in your school? Like, did you did you have a, like a crew that you hung out with when I went to college? Or no, no, was... just in uh, when you were younger, like uh, in yeah. elementary school, high school. I did. Yeah. When I was younger, I grew up, you know, pretty wide streets and we had a lawn and I mowed it. And it was just like we had and I had, um, you know, a pretty cushy upbringing of like some loving parents who are still together and um and, and yeah, I had friends down the street and I would ride my bike around and I had friends in high school and we started drinking together and we just, I had like, I had people. It wasn't until I went away to college that it was my first like hit with depression where like where it happened. Before that, it was all, I, it's hard to even imagine what my thinking was when I was in high school and stuff. I was just kind of in the ether and being a kid and being a half, not that good baseball player. And just like, just, I don't know, kept figuring it out. And I, I had a good English teacher my last um, year of high school. That was kind of like, she was the first one that was like, you know, you can write. And I was like, Oh, right. Before that it was English was just another subject. And so 
I brought that with me and then I went to college and it kind of all felt, I mean, I just really, uh, really got whacked with depression for the first time in my life. And that's when kind of, it's, I mean, that's when writing and guitar, all these like music kind of came along with it and helped me cope with that and sort of came out, came up sort of at the same time as all these kind of deep feelings of depression. Uh, I definitely want to talk more about that. Uh, was there a moment where you, because you talked about growing up in a loving family, uh, uh, can you uh, zoom out on that a little bit? As in, what did your parents do? And did you reach out to them and let them know that you were going through this depressive spell? And what was that, was that conversation like? Yeah, I did a bit. My mother always says to this day, she, she wished she could crawl through the phone and help me when I was in, when I was in college. But they were, I went away to school in Philly. I went to Villanova and my parents were six hours away in Boston. And it was my first time for an extended stay away from home. And, um, and, and also, I mean, I, I can't, I mean, as I look back, it seems so clear. I was like a freshman in college and we were kind of like in this isolated part of campus and I couldn't talk to girls and the girls were a quarter mile away at best. Anyway, there was no one around. I was in this all male dorm and we were just drinking a lot of beer, smoking a lot of pot. And, and as I look back now, it's like that stuff I, I could, I mean, I, that that will that I to this day that will I noticed the way that will spiral me down into depression um but my parents were very loving my, my my mother's like just the most beautiful loving person in the world like very warm and stuff my father's very supportive supported us put me through school got us what we needed got me a bike when I was young like all I mean we, we just we we didn't sort of lack for things and and but as I look back now I think my father as great as a dad as he was and is I do think there's a um, kind of like he wasn't sort of connected emotionally, which I guess a lot of fathers aren't. But um, as I look back now, I kind of see the ways that affected me. You know, I remember a, a, a an instant when I was, you know, it, it's it's cool to talk about these things now. I think I wouldn't have allowed myself until later in life to, and you hear it over and over. Everyone thinks like, well, I don't have any problems. Everybody else's problems are so much greater than mine. And it's like, no, my inner problems are my problems. It took me a long time and some therapy and some different energy sessions, all kinds of teachers to say like, no, your sensitivity is your strength, not your weakness. And that's why I write songs and things like that. But I was sensitive. You know, I was, I remember being a little kid, I don't even know, maybe seven years old and just crying and crying for whatever reason on the top of the stairs. And my father was downstairs watching TV and he wouldn't come up and he wouldn't acknowledge where I was clearly going through something. And I think things like that, you know, you don't even allow yourself that that was an experience or that was some kind of trauma from my little sensitive world, but it was, you know? Um, and so I think, and uh, I don't know, I mean, I've had to go way back because I don't have anything obvious. It wasn't like, oh, I, my parents split up here or I know I had a time, I had like a seizure when I was two from like 104 fever and I was put in like a bubble thing in the hospital and my mother couldn't sort of get to me for the first time. And I think she eventually she reached her hand in. I mean, I wonder about things like that going way back. I mean, who knows? It's like, because there's nothing obvious in my timeline that would say like, oh, this is when, you know, I, who people go through all kinds of in, incredibly hard things, you know, and I didn't have like, oh, this is when my brother died or this is when I, you know, I've just had a very... I've had very little loss in my life. I've had a very beautiful kind of outward existence, but I've struggled internally. And I, and I, I've had, I could, you know, I just have, my path is figuring out how to unpack that and what I'm, how I'm causing that, what I'm doing to myself, how I can sort of open up, let it flow, let the water flow. 
Well, you, you sound like a, I mean, you're, you're 45, I'm 46. And you know, the other part is as we get older, we, we feel things more. And, um, but if you're already an empath, it sounds like, like you're highly empathic. It's like, if you hurt, I hurt. Like I, I feel how you feel. And, um, and there's just something, I, I, I think that's kind of innate. Like you're just kind of born with that. And, uh, yeah. and you're right. Your father sounds like my father where like feeling things was a privilege. Like you, like you, you couldn't afford to feel things. You just had to shut it all down, get to work and provide for the family. And then you just, it just kind of calcifies and you, I think you over time lose access to that, unfortunately. Yeah. And I see it, unfortunately, in my father to this day, you know, he's got dementia now and, um, you know, he's 74 and, and it's, and it's, I see those things that he shut down in his mind. He's, you know, dad's always been crazy, you know, in his way, you're like, oh, dad's crazy, whatever, even though he's so loving, he really is a wonderful man, you know, and provided so much and dedicated himself. But he, you know, there's these things he shut down, especially in the last couple decades, you know, they've been living down on a golf course in Florida and like living whatever dream that is, but he kind of more and more shut himself into like his office in the house. And they've had, you know, kind of tougher times than you would think financially. They, they lost like their whole retirement situation in the, in the meltdown in 2008. So they've been, he like kind of has thought he could work his way out of it and he just works. And it, it, and I could see it in him over the years where it's like work becomes quote unquote work or just working becomes the only thing worth doing 24 seven, you know, we're, we're watching a movie on Christmas and he's like, no, he's got to go into the office on Christmas on his, in his, in his house that he lives in and just work. And, and yeah, I see these things of like, he lost touch with like friends and fun and joy and other things. My mother in the meanwhile is like social butterfly going to her Zumba class and, and just painting, painting, she paints and stuff. And she has these other outlets and my father was always the buttoned up mental one, the like getting the financial stuff done, like getting, you know, paying the bills, all that stuff. And it's like the narrowness of that over time and not having these other things. And sure enough, my mother's three years older than him. She's sharp as a tack and just kind of taking on a lot right now and taking care of them. And she's the one who's able to do this stuff. She's always been the quote unquote spacey one, you know, and now because she's, she sort of always used these other parts of her brain, her mind, her spirit, her body, you know, and my father is just like, shut down over the years you know and it's tough i see that and i feel those things those impulses in myself that he has and i'm like all right i, I don't want to go down that road yeah because you were on the road for so long or early in your career right like w once you figured out you're going to do music you're you're just in a van for how long would you say you on the road for like what was your longest stint well, I mean, I did 10 years with the original band that I had. I did 10 years straight of like 200 shows a year in a van and trailer around the whole country. So it was, a, I mean, yeah, it was, it was a lot. And I still bounce around a lot, but it's not as crazy as it used to be. And um, yeah, those were, I mean, yeah, <laughs> that was a lot. I'm still trying to process what happened in those years. Uh, so, I mean, your dad having dementia is it full-blown like is he able to still take care of himself or he's, is he under hospice no it's he's he's all right it's him and my mom and it's still like early dementia so he's he's okay like he's he's functioning and stuff like that he they just shut him down from driving like a few months ago and um <clears throat> but my mother's had to like start helping him shave and put on his shirts i mean it's getting it's like it's moving you know but he's still you know, he's still semi with it and he's, but it's, it's, 
it's hard, man. I'm sort of like grieving these parts of my father I can see going like while he's here, you know. Um, so it's it's interesting to me how, you know, people don't flip into dementia, they slip, you know, and he and I see that in him. It's just like I see all these ways that he kind of locked himself up over the years to kind of manifest now into more of a, a psychosis, I guess, you know, like in um it's sad, you know, I'm sitting, I could still sit and watch a ball game with my dad when I'm down there, but I don't know how much he's taking in and he goes in the other room and I'm breaking down crying. Cause it's like, just not the same. I know he's, I know he's there, but all these parts of him are not there. So, um, yeah, it's sad, but it, you know, he's still with us. It's all right. Now we're trying to move them up North and I got to put my big boy pants on and step up and, you know, like those, that role reversal is really tough to like step into being their caregiver in some ways. And, and I've been doing it over the years and it's, here we are. Um, yeah. Do you talk to your friends about what you're going through at all? Or is there an outlet? For, I know you, you talked about therapy. Are you in therapy or who are you sharing this experience with right now on a kind of a yeah, regular? Not many. It's funny as I sit here talking about it on a podcast, I think a lot, this will come as a surprise to a lot of people I know. And, and, um, and, you know, he didn't want this out there at all. My dad like and stuff, but it's getting to the point. Where it's like, dad, no, no, don't worry about that. Or you don't, you don't get to make that call. Like we, we can talk about it, but, uh, but I have, I mean, I, I found a good um, therapist who I need to check in with. It's been a little while. I was riding such a good streak for a while. It was kind of like, you know, you ease up on the sessions maybe after years, you know? Um, so I think I need to check back in cause there's a lot going on, but I had, I've only had two therapists, um, in my life. I went to one early on that I found, you know, through the, through the health insurance network thing when I was living North of Boston and it was not that good an experience. It was not the right fit for me. She was always rushed. It was, I'm sure she was, you know, I'm sure she has her abilities and stuff like that, but just was not a good fit. It was not, it seemed like she was really burnt out and I was burnt out and it was just not, you know, we're two humans in a room. And then uh, my current therapist, I actually found we, we lead, I lead retreats. Uh, like nowadays I do more like songwriting retreats, but with my friend Tara Lee, we'll, we'll go at the time. We were like, took people down to Costa Rica and she has, she's this amazing, amazing sparkly hippie. And she gets everyone to kind of open up. And we do all these goofy activities and non-goofy activities. And then I was doing writing and playing music for everyone and who was there. And one of the guys who was there was like early on in the week, we're like, he was driving us nuts. He just wanted me to keep playing. Like we didn't, we're like, what's this guy's deal? He seemed like kind of like really annoying or something. And then by the end of the week, we loved him. He was like our favorite guy there. And then so after the retreat is over and I'm like holding space for everyone and, and, you know, playing music and, and we're doing all this stuff together. And then, when the retreat was over, we all go to Montezuma in Costa Rica and have a few drinks. And I'm like, uh, you know, I don't know, like sort of letting this stuff pour out that I maybe wouldn't, I sh we shared a lot, you know, it's a retreat space. It's really open, but I think I let, you know, kind of maybe a lot of the darkness out of what I was really going through. This is around the time probably when I made, I was just leaving and it was just going through heartache and, and just, you know, management sounds like not that it sounds like a pretty benign thing, maybe, but I would suffer with that. I would in my career, my whole like kind of self and livelihood is tied up with my career. And I was having these problems with these like really high level managers who really weren't kind of seeing me and understanding me and stuff. There was just like, I don't know, stuff in my inner world. And so this guy who was who had been there on a retreat, I was like pouring out all this stuff. And he was like, you know, I'm a therapist. <laughs> I was like, okay, so he's my therapist. 
and uh, he's in Toronto and I zoom with him and he's been amazing because he, he really subscribes to like, um, he, he doesn't, I think a lot of therapists, maybe rightly or wrongly, they sort of really keep themselves out of it. And it's like this separate thing where they're listening as a clinician or something like that. And he has this beautiful way of not having that separation. He will share things about himself that work. He, he acts as if we're two human beings in a room. He makes it about me. He doesn't make it about himself. It, this is a situation that could be weird for me. He's a fan of my music. He really loves it. But he's not such a fan that I'm this more special than other people. He just loves music. And so he... And he's been giving me sessions for free, like a blessing, like just, you know, like, like I have a little more money now, but I didn't at the time when I started. And it's just like, he's like, no, it's been an honor in my life to help you. And, and so it's, it's been really beautiful, but he really like, you know, gets in the room with me and he will, and, and he'll, even when we're not in the room together physically, he'll, you know, he, he doesn't, he, 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 he doesn't take my bullshit. He doesn't, he'll push me on things. He, he just kind of knows when to get in there. And I think the first big thing, one of the first sessions I did with him, he was like, Oh, so you're a perfectionist. And I was like, no, what are you talking about? That's, that's stupid. Whatever. Second session. He's like, we end up somewhere. And he's like, yeah, no, so you're a perfectionist. I was like, what are you talking? And he kind of kept saying it. And at some point it clicked of like, there is no perfect. A perfectionist doesn't mean I do everything perfect. It means I hold myself to some kind of standard that I can't ever live up to in my mind. And when it, when the idea clicked, it, it sort of immediately painted my whole world in those colors. And I could see just much more and see, you know, how much work I had to do, but it really took this, like, it just was like this pressure valve that took it off. That was like, this is part of, part of what's going on. And I've had other breakthroughs with him, but that was a big one. Did, uh, did you feel like that contributed to, you said you had a five-year relationship that ended. Do you feel like that was a contributing factor being a perfectionist? That's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, maybe in the sense of like, cause that relationship was, it ended up long distance, you know, and she, I was living North of Boston and doing 200 shows a year. She was living on Martha's Vineyard and had her career there. And I was just like, anytime I would come home, she was a hundred mile drive and a ferry ride from me and just, just trying by sheer force to make it work. Like the last several years of that relationship was us just like trying and making it work. And there was a lot of love there, but it was like, you know, forcing, just like try, trying and trying and trying to make this thing happen. And um, so in the sense of like, yeah, like uh, perfectly trying to preserve this relationship, trying to some some vague idea of what I should be doing or something and and not wanting to lose. It was more a fear of loss. You know, when I went through that, this happened to me in a previous relationship out of college. It's like, once we break up, I do think there's some truth to like, if I could generalize, it seems to me in my experience that like women deal with the breakup while it's happening, before it's happening. So by the time you break up, they have really processed it in some major ways and they can start to move, they can move on. And I, I know I'm generalizing and everybody's different, but in my experience, you know, I think a guy in general starts dealing with the breakup on the day that it happens. And there's this way of kind of not acknowledging it. So I started dealing with it there and it was like, I would fall to the ground in despair and, and sadness and, and just be like, how can I keep going? And then, and then in my mind, I would keep sort of using her as a pacifier. And I did this in an old relationship too, where it's the image of her or a little video I had of her or a picture or something 
and saying her name literally out loud involuntarily sometimes. It's like just this kind of pacifier of my mind of how that person made me feel. And I would use that. My mind would keep using that even though that person wasn't there. And that just kind of prolongs the whole grieving process and the getting over. I've never been one to like, you know, burn all the photos and get and just sort of exercise that whole demon or something like that. I kind of hold on and suckle the memory for way too long. And so I didn't do it quite as long as I did the relationship out of college, but you know, a few years. And then like a few years ago, I had another breakup and it was like, oh, four months of kind of holding on. It was just like, it's some improvement. It doesn't feel like it at the time, but it's like some learning of how to kind of handle things better. Yeah, I mean, that's what's remarkable about your time at Villanova where, you know, you're feeling all the things going through a depression. And yes, you turn to drugs and alcohol, but you also turn to music and and songwriting. What gave you the the fortitude or resilience to to lean in that direction more? Well, I think at the time it was like a necessity. It was like I had to write for the first time in my life. And I had, I went away to college with a, like a beat up acoustic guitar. And I had had a guitar since I was like, my father gave me a guitar for Christmas when I was eight. I would pick it up, put it down. It was never a big part of my life, but it was something I could pick it up and do a couple things on. And um, when I went away to school, I got super depressed and my roommate had a much nicer guitar than I did. And I would just, my friends would laugh at me. I would sit and play for like 10 hours in my dorm room and they would come back, you know, eight hours later and I'm still playing. I just had to play. I was listening to a bunch of blues and and just like, I just felt it so strongly. I wasn't necessarily like practicing and practicing and practicing. I was playing and playing and playing. I had to play and I had to start writing. I was a chemical engineering major sitting in the back of chemistry class writing poems and like something had to give. I ended up an English major a couple of years later, but I was like, I needed that. I needed, I was so blessed to have like four years of school to like kind of figure it out. And to figure myself out socially, you know, I had been playing tons of guitar, writing poetry, studying philosophy, things like that, and writing my own poems. And then I started singing and I was like, huh, guitar, singing and words. I think I'm going to play music. I think I'm going to be a singer songwriter, you know, and it was my parents were like, what? And it was just like, it kind of all came out at the right time. You, what's the distinction for you between practicing and playing? I've heard you say that before in other episodes and because I just uh, started practicing the guitar myself and yeah. uh, and I've heard I remember listening to some teacher. She was like, we never uh, practice. Uh, we we always play. And and that always stuck to me. But I was like, what? I wonder what she really means by that. And then when you say it, I was like, what does he mean by that? Can you elaborate more on the yeah, I mean, I think separate that's- the two? I think that's a healthy way to look at it too. Like we're always playing. Um, I got that from, I went with my brother to see the bassist Billy Sheehan give a, give a talk at a daddy's junkie music in Boston, probably 25 years ago or something. And he, he talked about that and he, and it was just like, and he would talk about how people would be like, Oh yeah, I just, I just practiced for seven hours. It's like, did you, did you just sit there and play what felt good? He's like, you didn't practice. You played for seven hours. And I think there's something to be said for that. Like, I hire people who have practiced a lot more than I have. And they're sort of wizards on their instrument. They can do all these things. They have a deep bag of tricks. Practicing is kind of like not meant to be producing music for others to hear or for you to hear. Practicing in itself can sound annoying. 
repetitive. When I practice, and I've been trying to learn piano, I practice scales. It's not really enjoyable to listen to. Or I used to practice scales on my guitar. 60 BPM, just one note per second. I would go upstairs at a party and people would think I was a Fruit Loop. I was just, I was just, don't, 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 don't. And, and like, and that's practicing. And that, doing that an hour a day for like a couple of years, whatever it did, gave me this vocabulary where now I can, I can pick out melodies on the guitar better than I used to. I can, I know sort of where my fingers need to go. I'm not playing don't, 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 but if I want to go, don't, 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 I can, now I can play with that vocabulary that I've developed from practicing. You know, the goal is always to play. I mean, some people just practice and practice and practice and there's real academics and they have incredible chops and, you know, there's something to be said for that. But at the end of the day, there's a way to develop this vocabulary and these skills so that you can express more. And the masters have all done that. They've all done the work and they always say, you know, you do all this work so that you can forget it and then just let the spirit flow and let it come out. But having done that, having done all that work, you have this sort of toolbox to like fully express with. So. So what's your, what's your therapist, you know, labeling you as a perfectionist. And it sounds like you're accepting of that, that label being a part of you. What, what do you practice then like after after you've been labeled after it's been accepted what's the next step like what what do you do with that that's a really good question i mean like i said i think just the it really put that lens in front of everything and made me realize it's more of like it was more just mentally how i see myself and how i see the world and and i think like ah that's a really good question i mean i don't know how it would have affected my well, I guess it would just make me, cause I would worry about what I would practice. Cause you want to practice the perfect thing. There are a billion different things you can practice. Should I, pre- you know, and I'm always one, I want to do a lot of stuff. I'm like a singer songwriter who found a home in the jam world. And I love jazz, but I don't really play it. I love folk music. I do that, but I don't, I love like R and B and soul and all that. And there's like, I like any artist, I guess I'm trying to converge these different influences. So it's like, what do I do? You can just get stuck and paralyzed and thinking like that you need to go practice the perfect thing. I need to go immerse myself in soul music and really know how that's made. I need to learn production stuff. I need to become a better guitar soloist. I need to learn harmonic changes better for songwriting. I need to practice my singing. I need to all, all it's endless and you can just get stuck thinking like, and you don't, and I've done it. You don't get started because you're letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And the, and the reality is like when I just did those scales, which seemed like, okay, how does this fit into what I'm doing? That really flowered into all this beautiful stuff after that. It's, it's, it's really like, I think there's a truth to like practicing anything just as in and of itself is, is good for you. As long as it's not, I don't know, some destructive thing you're practicing, I think. But I, I think the act of just practicing something itself it almost on some level, it almost doesn't matter what it is. And so I've gone, you know, I've done, I've had, you know, years of my life where I was meditating for two hours a day and did like Vipassana courses where I'm meditating for 10 days straight in a, in a, in a, and like, and had that practice really strong. And then the perfectionist in me will be like, I can't let that go after. I mean, I was practicing, I was meditating two hours a day and, uh, didn't have a drink of alcohol for over a year and just, and, and I was like 
getting up a lot of stuff in my soul and everything. But I was also sort of at the end of that, I was miserable and really suffering. And eventually it took over months and months and months of like really doing it. Eventually it was like, you know, maybe I just allow myself to have a drink and like go out with some friends or something. And that that's my journey. I can't, you know, like I, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic, like I, but I, that's something I have to keep in check, but it's not like, it wasn't like a, Oh, let me forget about my addiction and go back to it. It wasn't that it was, it was more like I was sort of addicted to the work of like doing or felt or putting all this pressure on myself that I had to meditate for two hours every day and stuff. And then it's like, you know, letting out that pressure valve again. Of like, it, like, it sounds like a, a perfect mix of your mom and dad, right? Where like you, you saw your dad <laughs> yeah. being addicted to the work and then you saw your mom living this, you know, very fun, free social lifestyle and and i could see how that could cause conflict within you because you're like which direction do i go because i love them both yeah i think that's spot on i think you know i've i've built a career and a business out of making art out of making music you know and my mother made art and my father had the business so there's there's some truth to all that for sure i saw that you do puzzles you you had a, a video on your instagram of it and Puzzles is something like I've I watched my girlfriend Michelle do it and she looks so peaceful. Like I could just tell all the oxytocin and dopamine being released as she clicks each piece into place. W what does puzzles do for you? Is that was that a one off or is that something that you go to as a as a coping skill or a, a stress reliever? It's kind of in between. I'm not deep into puzzles. I just did. I happened to do a few and, and we would, you know, and I would and I have a you know, I, have, I live with my girlfriend and her daughter here now and we would do some, but I would end up just like getting obsessed over it. And there, there is something to when you find those two pieces that fit, it's like, oh, it feels good. There's something about it for sure. And I think I haven't gotten too deep into puzzles, but it definitely works. I mean, I get my mind. It, I just overthink things. And that's a perfect like kind of way of like you're using your mind, but sort of in this passive way. And it's sort of clear what you have to do. And you can't let yourself stress too much over a puzzle, you know, but my mind always needs these kind of pacifying things that if I don't watch it turn into their own little addictions, like I play chess on my phone, I got addicted to Sudoku on my phone, I like didn't see that coming, but I'm sitting there playing Sudoku for like hours a day. That gets a little overboard, but my mind sort of needs some pacification like that. I need to sort of, you know, like let it do something. That's all meditation does. It's just you're letting, you're throwing your mind a bone. You're giving it something to focus on, focus on the breath, come back to the breath, come back or whatever it is. But for me, it was the breath. And if I don't watch it, my mind, you know, just runs the whole show, runs everything like we all do, I guess. But, you know, I but one of the practices I got into this year, I signed up for this um, vocal transformation course online. This woman, Marin Azoff, who's amazing. Um, she and it's chanting um, through the through the different chakras, which. I've you know been aware of chakras, I guess, but it's even if it's like it's such a beautiful organizing principle for our bodies and our our whole spirits and how we're sort of constructed, and that really spoke to me. And then the chanting is literally a physical thing where you can feel it in these different parts of your body, depending on what you're chanting. And that practice really kind of lit up uh, some stuff for me. I forget why I brought that up. Wait, why were we, what were we talking about before <laughs> that? Um, We're talking about puzzles and, oh, yeah. and and addiction and, you know, having something to focus on. Yeah. 
So that, you know, getting into that practice, having that practice every day, I would go in for a half hour every day and chant and it set this whole tone and it just sort of, you come back, it's, it's this beautiful physical thing that's going on. You come back to the chant and you do that and you take a nice breath and you come back to the chant and you do it 108 times over through the, through the mala beads. And it's just beautiful. It's, it's, I don't have to think. I can't think while I'm doing it. I can't think too much because I have to come back to the chant. I have to come back to the physical thing. And yeah, that, that's been huge. And, you know, there's a, there's a million different ways to do that. But. You know, I'm actually surprised that because I'm big into chanting. Also, uh, a friend of mine took me to a Buddhist temple where they do the nam ya harenge yo. Like when you have a room full of people doing it. Yeah. Yeah, hey, 20 minutes in, you're like, I don't know what this is, but this is like, this must be like an ayahuasca trip. I've never done one of those, but like, it, it is an out of body experience for sure. Um, yeah. But I'm surprised that chanting is the direction you'd want to go because you sing so much. And I'm just like, is that, is that, how does that affect the vocal cords? Or do you feel like that actually in some ways strengthen your vocal cords? Um. Oh yeah, it's well. It changes the whole. Th I just got back from a retreat with Marin, with that whole, with the group who's doing the the vocal transformation, and uh, it was incredible. And I, I was like the professional singer among the bunch. Uh, well, she's a professional singer too, but the people coming in are not like singers. They're just people, you know, looking for this practice in their life. And so am I. And she said at the beginning of the week, she's like, the professional singers have the hardest time with this. And I got my ass kicked that whole week. It was because it's all it's not just your vocal cords. Her whole thing is like you sing from every place in your body. Your whole body is a resonant chamber for you to sing from. So for me, where I've like been quoting professionally singing for a couple of decades, I have these certain ways I've developed of singing. This is like trying to bust out of that and trying to sing. You know, her whole thing, the, the chakra thing is really interesting because like the throat chakra is in between your heart and your mind. And so much of it is like our, we're, we're always, our mind is running the show. And so our, our throat, our expression is coming from the mind. It's all talking down from the mind. But if you can get centered in your heart, it sounds hokey, but it's so true. If you can get centered in your heart and speak up from the heart, up towards your throat, it changes everything. So it's, yeah, the chant, it was it was interesting for me to, to sing for some other reasons other than showing up to the gig and singing my songs or recording a track or something like that. It's this whole other thing that I'm just starting to get into. So it's nice to be a kindergartner of singing in a way. Yeah. That, um, that whole Zen mind beginner's mind. I, there's this guy on YouTube who talks about uh, projecting from your balls. He's like, you know, speak from your song. <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, and it's true because, uh, you know, even in my improv classes where they ask you to project from, they'll say project from your forehead, project from your chest, project from your balls, project from your feet. And you can literally feel how that changes the pitch and depth and tone of what you are communicating. It's powerful. Absolutely. We did exercises with that where you would another you would pick a partner, they would stand in front of you with their eyes closed and you would just physically touch the different parts of their body or move them in a certain way. And whatever sound wanted to come out, they would have to let out. It's amazing. Like what's in there if you just let it come out? It's not just your head 
and not just your throat or bodily function noises or whatever. It's not that it's like your whole body is resonating and it, it really is true. There's like all these other ways to do it. And the chanting is really, I mean, th this stuff goes back thousands of years. It's not like they just came up with this course. This is like older than yoga, older than yoga. It's like the chanting, it literally, the way the the Sanskrit sounds, Sanskrit is a, is a, uh, audio language it's not it's not it wasn't meant for like speaking and making conversation it was literally like you make these different sounds and you can it's proven scientifically the way that your tongue touches your different parts of your mouth to make the sounds the nerves connect to that area of your body that chakra you're working with and it literally scientifically you can it's just it just changes your physiology like it, uh. It works. Yeah, and uh, it's called acceptance commitment therapy. And Stephen C. Hayes talks about singing your pain. So, like, whatever's bothering you, um, like, if you're mad about your boss, you'll be like, "I'm mad about my boss." Like, like, turn it into a musical or a rap. Like, I'm mad about my boss because you made me do that. Like, whatever <laughs> it is, and it helps to dissipate the the pain and trauma. Which is, I mean, essentially what you've done but you've made a career out of it right you've channeled your feelings onto paper onto the stage in front of hundreds of thousands if not millions of people <laughs> yeah yeah but it's it's an interesting journey for me as i go on i realize like you know it i i i get pretty vulnerable on my tracks and i try to really speak my bare truth and really put it out there and 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 there's a vulnerability in that, but it also is a controlled kind of vulnerability. I sort of make this little beautiful ornate little box of vulnerability and I offer it to an audience and I do that. And there is something in me that, yeah, has led to me shouting my feelings to a crowd uh, for a couple hours a night through a microphone. But that's also like my crafted reality of that, you know, and I stand by that. I, I stand by the art that I make, but there's also, it's endless. There's, there's ways I'm not necessarily up there saying exactly what I'm thinking. I may be pissed off by the guy in the third row or something like that. There's, there's a, it's a, there's a, it's a, there's still kind of a veil and it gets kind of washy with me because my whole thing is like, this is me. This is who I am. I'm not up there trying to be flashy or have a persona, but at the end of the day, it is, there is a persona that I'm creating, whether I mean to or not. So now I'm kind of going through all those questions and, 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 you know, there's always more ways to be vulnerable. You know, the, when we, we pulled off a bunch of shows, I've been really lucky through the pandemic. We did shows on new year's when nobody was doing shows on this past new year's. And I, I'm not one to be an outlier on that stuff, but everyone in my band kept testing negative. The venues were all testing negative. They were checking back. So they were trying to make it as safe as possible. Everything kind of lined up to be like, surprisingly like ah, i think we can do this so the little line i came up with was like protected and connected let's let's stay protected and be connected which is a nice cute little phrase and it works too but it made me think of like vulnerability in its essence is not being protected you can't be fully protected and be connected you know what i mean so that was interesting to me like you have to take some risk you have to like I don't know. Keep letting these parts of you move that you're scared to move. You, you have, there has to be like, you're not, if you completely stay protected, then you're not going to be completely protected. I mean, connected. 
Does that make sense? Right, because there has to be a willingness to open up and and share those moments where you do feel rejected or isolated or um, you know hurt or whether or something's even bothering you or even excited about something. I think you know sometimes we we talk so much about depression and sadness and anxiety, but there there's some there are some moments where we're even afraid to express our joy and happiness because we don't want to make others feel jealous or inadequate or, um, you know, cause some type of uh, rift in, in the relationship. I think that's totally true. Sharing emotions of any kind, you know? Yeah. I think that's a hundred percent true. It, and it, it can work the other way where, yeah, we're, we get to the extreme of like, we can only express our sadness or it starts to fit in with some persona. You get comfortable sharing that. And then that's all you're sharing. And it's like, yeah, no, sometimes I'm happy. Sometimes I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I think you're right. Are there any books that you've read that has helped you tap into your emotional experiences or have given you insights and they don't have to be self-help. They could be, fiction books um you know i know russian novels get deep into the emotions but for you what was that book that you're like oh this speaks to me i think uh i mean there's sort of they almost sound obvious but in my you know like when i read um early like in high school when i read um um celestine prophecy that started to open up some feeling of energy and things like that. And then when I was in college, I read Way of the Peaceful Warrior, Dan Millman, and that opened up this whole other way of looking at things. And then eventually Eckhart Tolle, um, uh, more a new earth than than the power of now, but they both like, you read any part of that. And Thich Nhat Hanh, any Thich Nhat Hanh book, just pick it up and read it. It will change your day, the one paragraph that you read. And there's just so much in that. But then there's like, there's all these others, like um, Stephen King has a book called On Writing that is really huge for me. I've given that book away and bought it again, like nine times or something. I just always have a couple copies so I can give it and and keep getting them. Um, but that was really like, because the whole first half of the book is, it's like autobiographical and it's Stephen King writing it. So the writing is amazing. Uh, but it's like, he talks about his whole story. He was an alcoholic drug addict and he talks about, you know, signing his first book deal and getting all this money when they were so broke and it's his whole journey, but then just him sort of being a terror to himself and like his family. And it's just really, and then, um, then it goes into the craft of actually writing, which is amazing just to hear a writer talk about. But one of the things that stuck with me in that was he was like, um, you know, art isn't, Art isn't here to to support life. It's actually the other way around. Or no, life isn't here to support art. Oh, art isn't here to support life. It's actually the other way around. Meaning, like he was like, art first. I must write, and that is what I do, and that will support my family, and that is what my life comes from. The art, and he's like, no, your art comes from your life. Live life. Be, have a life. Be a life. And then you can make art from there, but it's not the other way around. And that, that kind of, that kind of flipped it on me. And then uh, Livingston Taylor has a book called uh, on performance. I think he teaches performance at Berkeley and that really helped with like just performance. The thing that flipped around for me on that, he was like, the audience isn't there to observe us. We're actually there to observe them. 
And that really clicked with me. It was like, whoa, because then all of a sudden you're observing up there. You're not so worried about what I'm putting out for the audience. I'm actually, I am in the room and I'm looking at what's going on and I'm smelling the room and feeling the lights and hearing myself. And it's not just, oh, I'm worried about what I'm singing and I got to get this lyric right, you know? So yeah, books like that have like flipped it around for me. Who was that book by on performance? Uh, Livingston Taylor, who's James Taylor's there it Taylor. is. All right. Uh, and then last, I have two more questions. Um, I saw you post your P.O. box on Instagram. You're like, I have a P.O. box. Send me stuff. What, yeah. what prompted that? And what, like, what was your intention? And then what, what, like, what's been a fascinating thing that people have sent you? Yeah, I think it came. I had always thought of getting a P.O. box because I like to stay connected to fans. And then when I, you know, I bought a house up here and I've also had like, you know, it's rare, but I've had some like weird experiences with like, you know, just like one in a million fans that kind of like go a little overboard and think they know me, but they don't. And they can get a little stalkerish. It's it's I've had a couple weird experiences where it was like, all right, I'm not going to give everyone my home address. I thought about getting a PO box. So, and then I think part of it honestly was doing that chanting work when I, when I, it was, I mean, it was like clockwork. It was like when I got, we would chant through different chakras for a couple of weeks at a time and you move up to the next one. And when I got to the throat chakra, which is like expression, I literally just started clicking where I was like, I'm going to post stuff from my old journals from the last 20 years and just, and just put out just more vulnerable. Again, the perfectionist to me, the, overthinker wants to be like ah it's not ready i'm not going to put this out and i'll wait till i'm ready you know and this is like no express get it out there it's from the heart you wrote this stuff in the heart you can find good stuff to do it so i think it was a part of that of like opening up to some connection and it was interesting to me when i posted it people were like oh you got a lot of faith in humanity don't you just putting a po box out there and i was like yeah i do i do have faith in humanity like what are you going to send me to my po box that's like so bad and of course, you know, there's some, there's a, there's a service called like Dick in the mail or something. People send a couple like obscene things, but it's, it's like, all right, I just throw them out and that's it. Like I got a giant cardboard penis in the mail. Okay, great. Who cares? You know, but for the most part, I get like beautifully like heartfelt letters, really heartfelt, like some, some just like postcards from where people are quick notes. Um, but I've gotten some really heartfelt, like people who have like wanted for years to express something back to me that they've gotten from me and my music. And it's, it's, a, it's incredible. And, uh, and gifts and like, you know, I've gotten, I don't even know, like little, I've gotten like crystals and, and like uh, shirts and um, I don't know, all kinds of little things that mean something to people, stickers, like things like to just people send stuff. They want to give something back to me. And it's like, it's beautiful. I go in there and it's like Christmas, you know, and it's not so I'm not like, you know, world famous or it's like, oh, the post office can't keep up. It's like, no, I go in every few weeks and I get some beautiful gifts for me. That's Why so not? cool. <laughs> That's so cool. I, I, I was like, maybe, maybe I should get one also, because that, that, is, that is a really cool thing. Uh, because It's easy to do, and it's cheap, and it's like you never, and it's like, again, what it, it's, you know, have some faith in people. They're going to, you know, your, your stuff means a lot to people, and some people want to give back, and it's like, it's really nice. Oh, yeah, because when people say, oh, can I send you? And I go, uh, nah, because, you know, I don't, like you said, I don't want to give out my address, but the P.O. Yeah. Box. Uh, especially because I love books so much and people do want to send me books and I'm, and I'm like, uh, uh-uh. so that'd be a great way of doing that. Um, 
last question, and I ask this because I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Ryan Montblue? Wow. It's a really good question. I mean, it's, you know, what comes to mind is listening to them, you know, before I say anything, but maybe they don't want to say anything. But I mean, I guess the, 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 the thing that I've learned is um, things, everything always changes. Everything, you know, it, it, I've learned it in little ways, big ways. I've learned it from meditating 10 hours a day for 10 days straight. That whole lesson about that and from the Buddha and all that is that things arise and they pass, they arise and they pass, they arise and they pass. And where you can observe the change. That's what, you know, so when you're in that dark hole, you're in a place where all you see is a, is, is kind of a, a, a wrong or, or just a wrong sort of past and a completely bleak future where nothing changes and you don't see any change there is no change there's no way there's no way you could do the work or whatever it is to get out of it there's no way the things around you are going to change it's all just like you're stuck in this hole and that's when you need like any any bit of light to get you out of that and it's not going to change it all in an instant but anything to get you out of the hole anything to like literally like walk down the street or or listen for any little sign listen to a bird anything there's just anything to sort of grasp onto some light that's there because it will change it does change it always changes it changed for me you know I, I mean i i never tried to kill myself but i you know got to the point where i thought about how i would do it and that's about as far as i got but i it would happen several times and i would think about it and i still get those thoughts will pop up on you know when things get bleak that will kind of pop up in my head you know it's like and that's our my mind sort of like taking control of me um and it's just it's just holding on it does change things change in ways that you don't even know about you know so um keep taking a step as hard as it up take a step you know and the, and the beautiful things can unfold from there but it doesn't change overnight maybe maybe it does but things change uh and then <laughs> i just noticed the painting on your fingernail is that by <laughs> uh the the daughter yeah my girlfriend's daughter sylvia she does my nail. i let her do one nail whenever i have a new little batch of shows for a weekend she just makes sure i get my nail done so i love nice. it man i love that uh thank you ryan where can people find you uh ryanmontblue.com or anywhere you listen to music uh, my name is yeah m-o-n-t-b-l-e-a-u ryan montblue and um yeah i'm pretty easy to find out there all the socials any of that stuff and come uh, got a p.o box so <laughs> and I'll, I'll link that and the p.o box in the show notes uh definitely check out a song i was just leaving 75 and sunny and then my new favorite is ankles um <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS or any of the international phone numbers that are listed. If you're in Scotland, Budapest, uh, Asia, Singapore, wherever you are in the world, there are international phone numbers in the show notes for you. You can call, you can chat, you can text, 
You can use Bitcoin. I'll talk more about that in another episode for some of you who live in countries where seeking help could put you at risk. Um, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you, Leo.